welcome to the Assembling Inclusion podcast. On this show, we feature different programs, individuals, and initiatives focused on being more inclusive of individual needs. We invite you to learn right alongside us. If you want some additional resources or access to our courses, please visit our website or follow us on social media. But for right now, let's get right to the episode. I recently came across an article that said that anywhere from 11 to 30% of students in higher education are considered neurodiverse. Given that this is a fairly substantial part of the student body, it's important to consider neurodiversity on higher education campuses, specifically how professors and staff can ensure that everyone has their needs met in the classroom. Today, we're talking to two individuals who created the Neurodiversity Hub to better prepare faculty to support the learners in their classes. Dr. Sally Izquierdo and Kartika Kumari are part of Queens College, which is in the City University of New York system. We discuss how they went about creating the hub, including how they select resources to share with faculty, the communication piece within the online platform, and how access to these resources has impacted the staff and, most importantly, the students. Let's dive right in to learn more about the Queens College Neurodiversity Hub. Hello and welcome back to the Assembly Inclusion Podcast. Today we're talking all about the Neurodiversity Hub that was built at Queens College. We're joined today by Dr. Sally Izquierdo and and graduate student Kartika Kumari, who will both be sharing their experiences with creating and implementing this hub. So Sally and Kartika, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. (laughs) I'm so excited to talk about the Neurodiversity Hub, but before we dive into that, I figure we could let the listeners know a little bit about who you both are and your work and your experiences. So to start us off, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourselves and your backgrounds? My name is Dr. Sally Izquierdo. I am a board certified and licensed behavior analyst. I have, I'll date myself, I have about 30 years of experience working with individuals with disabilities and their families, beginning when I was about 19, working direct care in an intermediate care facility, getting my undergraduate degree in psychology, and always thinking that I would kind of work in mental health and do some sort of child therapy. But after I graduated, my experience at that ICF led me to jobs with young children with special needs as both a care coordinator and then an early intervention teacher. And I really still, though, wanted to work one-on-one, and I knew I wouldn't stay at that school forever. So I was always exploring and looking for things. And I went to a conference where I heard a parent speak on a panel, and she was a parent of an autistic child, and she was looking for home therapists. And this was in Florida many years ago. And back then, a lot of families identified and trained their own behavior therapists, And that is how I came to learn about applied behavior analysis. And I started working with that family and others, and I got in touch with some really great training and supervision and eventually was certified as a behavior analyst. I also got a master's degree in counseling while I was still in Florida because there were no behavior analysis degrees close to where I was living. And so I felt the counseling background would be helpful, and it was and still is. I worked for many years as a therapist, a supervisor, consultant, and even an on-site behavior analyst at another preschool for children with special needs. And when I moved back to New York, I applied for the doctoral program in psychology at Queens College with a concentration in applied behavior analysis. And I graduated with my PhD in 2020 and was hired for my current position a month later. 
So I work in the same department that I graduated from, which is really cool. At Queens College, I am a clinical training manager. I'm responsible for identifying and creating experience opportunities for our master's students of psychology. And we have three master's programs, a general psych program, a behavioral neuroscience program, and an applied behavior analysis program. So I'm also the director of the applied behavior analysis graduate programs. And I picked up another hat my first year at Queens College, which led me to the neurodiversity hub that we're here to talk about today. We have a program at CUNY called Project Reach. And this is a CUNY-wide program providing support to autistic CUNY students. REACH stands for Resources and Education on Autism as CUNY's hallmark. And in spring 2021, we expanded the program to Queens College. So I direct that program. So we provide peer mentorship to Queens College students and other CUNY students with ASD. And it was sort of a combination of my two hats of clinical training manager and director of Project REACH that led me to create the Neurodiversity Support Fellowship. And I was asked to provide a two-part faculty webinar about neurodiversity and how to better support autistic college students. Rather than do that myself, I created the fellowship positions for two master's students. And then one of those students was Kartika Kumari. Hi, I'm Kartika Kumari. I am a second year behavioral neuroscience master's student at Queens College. And I also work as a resource coordinator for Project Reach at Queens College. I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and a minor in Biology over 12 years ago. But I decided to come back to school back in 2021 after leaving my job at the height of pandemic over three years ago. I used to work with patients with brain injury for over nine years as a cognitive remediation assistant. And in the midst of pandemic, I just became acutely aware of all the systemic gaps and, and felt the need to really reassess what I was doing with my life, which eventually led me to applying for a behavioral neuroscience program at Queens College in 2021. And then I applied and was awarded the Neurodiversity Fellowship in 2022 and working under Dr. Izquierdo's guidance and rest has been history. Well, thank you so much to both of you for telling us about your experiences and your background. I always like to hear a little bit about where everybody came from that led them to this point. So it's really great to see how to have both of your backgrounds kind of played a role in getting involved with this, this fellowship and eventually the Neurodiversity Hub. So just to jump into that, what was the inspiration for actually starting the Neurodiversity Hub at Queens College? Was there a specific thought process that went into specifically choosing to create a resource hub for instructors? So we were brainstorming for our second presentation, which was about neurodiversity in the classroom. It really made us think about developing a platform for our workshop participants to access after the workshop was over. So you know, rather than just sending PDFs with hyperlinks, uh, we felt that we wanted to create a space where everyone could access all the resources that we spoke about in our workshop. And after a lot of brainstorming, we felt that Microsoft Teams was the perfect platform for that. It would be a great place for people to ask questions, exchange ideas, and access resources all at the same time. And that's how Neurodiversity Hub was born. And I'll just add to that. When I was thinking about creating the fellowship opportunity, having been asked to create those faculty webinars and discussing that with other colleagues in the department, Dr. Desiree Bird was kind of providing some mentorship to me at that 
time as a new faculty member at Queens College. And we were discussing how our department sorely needed these resources and needed to learn more about neurodiversity. And could there be a place that we keep that information so that it's accessible to our faculty and we could share, you know, perhaps at faculty meetings, resources that we've made available in kind of small digestible bites. And so the neurodiversity support fellowship kind of brought both of those things together. It allowed students and I to work on these faculty training workshops together, and then also take all of that information and house it somewhere so that we could make it accessible to the psychology department faculty and other faculty. And so those workshops and the hub were made available not only to our department, but all of QC and really all of CUNY. So it was broader than we had planned, but it was a beautiful opportunity. The fellowship and the workshops and the hub sort of all came together really nicely. And I think I, I was really drawn to the hub when I had heard about it, because that was actually the thought process for what I was trying to do with this platform. We have e-learning and resources and stuff on our website. And it's something that I do curating that space that people can come and ask questions. So when I had heard about the neurodiversity hub, I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> I love yeah, the absolutely. mix of the in-person with the additional resources and continued learning independently. I think that's a great combo. Right. And CUNY had recently moved to the Microsoft office suite from Google. And so all of us as faculty members have been getting used to using Teams and just becoming more familiar with that platform. And I kind of love it. Not only is it a great place to just house information, but from my perspective, it's a great place for a collegial discussion forum, right? So you can chat, you can post and share information. You can see who the other members are and know who else is interested in learning more. And so that was really important to me. I felt like it was the right fit for CUNY and the right fit for this type of platform. Oh yeah, definitely. I could see how that makes sense to have both the opportunity to share the resource and have that discussion as well. I really do want to do a deep dive into the creation of the hub because I think that's something a lot of our listeners will be interested in. But before we get to that, what do you both personally think are some of the best practices for creating inclusive and accessible learning environments for neurodivergent students? I know that's a very broad question because everybody is different, has their own unique individual needs and how they learn best. But just as a whole, what do you think are some best practices for making learning more inclusive, especially in higher education? As a neurodivergent student myself, I would say first and foremost would be the acknowledgement of learner variability. And I know it's so broad, but I know we could talk on and on about this for hours, like me and Dr. Skirda would. But I would really say first and foremost would be the acknowledgement of learner variability and acknowledgement of uh, neurodiversity, period. And conducting workshops like we have done in the past and having the faculty and staff attending workshops really enables better understanding of what students like myself encounter in the classroom, which really leads to creating more inclusivity and welcoming environment for all students. So those are just my thoughts on creating inclusive and accessible learning environments. Yeah. I, I would have to agree with Kartika. There is so much variability. And I think that's 
important to recognize and also right part of the challenge is how do you meet the needs of so many different students and helping faculty to understand that there's a difference between accommodations versus having a more general inclusive environment and not having to know whether you have a student with a disability in your class or what that disability is. Some of the practices that we recommend, and it's a lot of what's on our checklist, but areas like communication stands out as a big one. I think developing effective communication and providing multiple ways and many opportunities for students to communicate is super important. Not everything happens one way and not all students are comfortable communicating just one way. So, you know, speaking to the professor in an in-person class that may not work for everybody. And so developing different modes of communication, opportunities to communicate in real time for students who might be online, right? Or just a lot of our communication is online now. And so oftentimes students need and want to communicate in real time, right? And so things like a Teams platform or a Slack app or some other way for students to be able to directly message their instructor can be really helpful. Also having alternate ways of engaging in discussions, right? So that communication piece, but also engaging in coursework, multiple modalities that can be very helpful as well. And then there's the executive functioning piece where students may come in with all sorts of different barriers to being able to participate meaningfully and being aware of those things, as well as providing as many ways of breaking down those barriers as possible. So for example, sometimes students have difficulty absorbing lots of information all at once. So breaking things down into smaller chunks and communicating those small pieces to students sort of separately so that they can tackle them one at a time. So making a bigger project into smaller pieces where all those pieces come together and then form the final project rather than just saying, do this big project. And I'm not going to teach you how to do it. Sometimes students don't know how to tackle things like that. So being aware of that and being able to design your course to be more accessible to students who might have those types of executive functioning difficulties, difficulties with time management and so forth. I think those are really, really important. But something that's overarching for me is wanting faculty members to take a proactive approach to addressing students' needs, a proactive approach to learning about neurodiversity, learning about all the differences and ways that students may need to engage and to communicate rather than a passive approach or just deal with problems as they arise, right? That's I think the most important thing. I appreciate the points that both of you made. I've seen that from the K-12 side. I could see how that would be beneficial, both to just be aware of neurodiversity in your classroom and then to take that proactive approach. It's good advice and good considerations for people to consider when they're designing inclusive learning environments, for sure. So within the hub, what so I know you had mentioned that there are supplemental resources to your in-person workshops, but what other types of resources were selected to be included within the hub? Was there a specific criteria where you decided I'm going to include this, I'm not going to include this, or is it kind of just anything and everything you think is beneficial for faculty members? So we have articles and links for podcasts and books and everything related to our workshop. But the selection criteria was relevance to neurodiversity in higher education. 
and a universal design for learning. Perfect. I was gonna I was gonna ask if it had anything about UDL in there. I, I assumed it right. did. So that makes sense. I mean, universal design for learning has that proactive approach rather than retrofitting to each student. It's just again like creating that inclusive welcoming environment for all students rather than thinking about one student or thinking oh how many accommodations and letters did I get this semester like it's for everybody and that makes a lot of sense that's something I had noticed too with even like my teachers that I work with they're trying to overcome obstacles as they come up in the classroom it's like well you could have done that like way at the beginning of the year before you even met the students by using UDL so I appreciate that um, you have those resources in there as well. And I appreciate the multiple modalities because that kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, like giving the faculty members options for the types of resources then they can view too. It's not just all articles or all videos or all audio files for podcasts. Like you can mix and match depending on what works for you, which is a great way to model what you want them to be able to do as well. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So I don't know if there's a way to track this in Teams, but is there a way for you to tell what resources have been accessed most frequently? And do you happen to know what those are? Yeah, so it's linked to a SharePoint website and we are able to check what file is accessed the most. And the most accessed file is my favorite resource that Dr. Sears has created, which is the instructor checklist. First of all, I'm a huge fan of a checklist <laughs> to begin with. And I do this for any workshop that I'm giving or training is create just a succinct sort of document that summarizes everything that we went through, but it's really created as a checklist with different categories of support that faculty members should consider, right? So I kind of have it designed as a preparing for your semester for a course you're about to teach. Have you considered, you know, all of these areas with a way for them to check off and actually fill in their plan for the semester? And then because I'm a behavior analyst and it's what we do, there is an opportunity at the end of the checklist to create goals for yourself and list out what those are and define them and then monitor your own behavior. So the focus of the checklist is on the faculty member, not on the student, right? So it's an opportunity to monitor and manage your own behavior with respect to create an inclusive environment rather than focus on the students. We have it pinned on the site. The site allows you to pin certain documents and that may be part of why it is accessed so often. It covers general communication and lots of space for faculty members to kind of write in their responses and make a plan for themselves. The syllabus is super important because that's, a, you know, your first opportunity to communicate with students and make sure that they have made everything clear and salient, that things are really clearly expressed. And most universities do this, include in their syllabus, but we try to be very explicit about that, making sure that resources are available to students like mental health services, special services, tutoring, and so forth. There's an executive functioning section here. So some of the things that we recommend on the checklist are providing an agenda prior to or at the beginning of each class, like what are we going to cover today? Breaking up lectures into smaller chunks giving breaks between topics. And uh, you don't see that very often in class, right? So if you go into a class and there's a scheduled break, 
more often than not, in my experience, faculty members say, how about we don't take the break and we just get out 15 minutes early, right? That may not be an inclusive approach. And so taking frequent breaks and always including that break, whether or not all students want to, may be a better option. Identifying how students will engage or giving them different options of engagement, right? Verbal, written, text, maybe responding later, having instructions and prompts in multiple formats, There's a lot of different things with respect to executive function that we can use. Identifying what are the response forms going to be, again, that speaks to different types of engagement. Incorporating strengths and interests is where it gets a little bit more personal. One of the things that we recommended that faculty members do is survey their students often throughout the semester. It can be an optional survey. I do this in my courses all the time. If students want to share some important information about them that helps them learn, that's a good opportunity for us to catch something before it becomes an issue. And if students share something that we can do differently at the beginning of the semester, that's helpful. So incorporating strengths and interests where possible and different types of assessment, physical space if we're teaching online, soliciting student feedback, and plan for consultation. So again, our focus has been on getting faculty members to talk to each other about neurodiversity and not be afraid to talk to each other about it and share information. And then we have a section for sharing what they've learned with other people. What am I going to do to learn more? Plan for self-improvement which would be creating goals for ourselves to do better, right? Like if you go through the checklist and think about what you set up for yourself in your classroom, we may find gaps, right? I find gaps when I go through it. So then I might create a plan for myself to learn something else or to tackle something new each semester. And so we have a space for that, a self-management plan at the end. So that's about it. I really love how detailed it is. I can see how that's the most popular (laughs) resource. It's so easy to use too, which I appreciate. And it really breaks down what people need to do in a way that's not overwhelming. Even as you were going through it, I was going through like in my head as a teacher of teachers or a trainer of teachers. I'm like, what am I not, what am, where are my gaps that I'm not doing? And so I can see how like someone could take that and really go through and create an improvement plan for themselves. Even as you were saying certain things, I was like, oh, that's something I could do this year for my teachers as I'm training them. (laughs) Right, right. We expect people to identify gaps when they go through the checklist. And we don't expect people to change everything in one semester, but change one thing, right? Maybe they can change one thing and that, you know, will improve their course and, and how accessible it is to our other students. It's a really great starting off point to build and you can, and you can reuse it over and over again the next semester, try something else, add something else to your, you know, strategies to support your students better. So I'm glad you shared that. Thank you for telling us a little bit about the checklist. Sure. So just out of curiosity, how many, I know you said it's all throughout CUNY campuses, right? So how many instructors around are currently accessing the platform? I think we have about 50. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not as many as we would like. And so this definitely is a work in progress with respect to dissemination. So 50 sounds like a very small number and it is, but interestingly enough, since we've been featured in the QView, which is a Queens College publication and also Inside Higher Education, which is more 
broad, we've had faculty members reaching out to us from all over the country interested in the hub. And it is also on our website for faculty. They recently changed yep. it, right? They recently changed it. Um, yes, the center, it's yeah, it's called the Center for Excellence in Teaching, Learning, and Leadership. Leadership. Yeah. They offer resources for faculty members, and our neurodiversity hub is posted there as well. So it's a way for faculty when they're looking for help, they can find that also. And 50 is not a bad number to start off with, because I think how how long ago did you launch it? It was December, right, Kartika? Uh, yes. Okay. So it hasn't, yeah. it hasn't been like, you know, a really long, long time. 50 is pretty good still. And I, I think the inside higher ed article is how I found you both. Mm-hmm. I can see how <laughs> there's more people from around the world who are like, this is something I really would like to either have access to, or would like to start at my own university. It's a great jumping off point for sure. And I'm sure the people who are in it are actively getting a lot out of it, which is really great too. Yeah, we hope so. <laughs> So I wanted to talk a little bit about the communication piece of the hub. I think you had both talked about it a little bit earlier, that there is the opportunity for faculty members to collaborate and ask each other questions in an asynchronous format where they're just kind of sharing ideas and resources. And I noticed on the checklist too, there was that option. Did you share your resource with the hub? So can you just tell us a little bit about how you facilitate that collaboration? Because Coming from the PD side of things, I know how hard that is to get people to do. So I'm just curious how you're facilitating that kind of idea of working together and sharing. I think the Teams platform was intentional with respect to communication like that. We had hoped that it would sort of just happen naturally. And and again, that's still, I think, a work in progress, getting folks to communicate There were some nice discussions in our workshops between participants, and that's been really nice. And I think just having it available has opened up some in-person discussions between faculty members. I'm also a member of our DEIA committee, and I made sure that the A was added on to our diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility committee. And so I've been able to bring these resources there. And so we've had some nice departmental discussions as well. I try to bring that accessibility piece everywhere I go. So I think even though we don't see the type of online communication that we had hoped for just yet, I think the fact that it exists has opened up pockets of communication around our campus. Kartika and I both have had several. And just to share with relevant administrative members about what we're doing and that there's a need and just to kind of highlight the need on our campus. I think that is more of the communication piece that we see. And I think it's going to take some time before faculty members are really actively working together. I've seen firsthand how difficult it is to get that community of practice up and running. And even just the in-person conversations, it's a good shift toward that environment. So I appreciate the fact that you're even just including that in the process. I think that's great to even just have a place to go, even if it's just getting started, just to share. So from what you've both observed since the Neurodiversity Hub has launched, how has it impacted the attitudes of the faculty members toward neurodiversity and implementation of inclusive practices within their courses and classrooms? I think that folks are more open and realize that, you know, this is something that's not really optional, but that everybody really needs to focus on. I think our faculty are more aware that there are neurodivergent students in our 
classes that we may not realize. And we don't have to know, right? If we are working from a very inclusive perspective and we want our courses and our work to be accessible in general, that we don't, we don't have to know that there are neurodivergent students in our classroom, but we should act under the assumption that of course there are. And I think that that has been a nice change, a nice step in the right direction. And I think it's expected now that accessibility and inclusion are part of all of our conversations. Whereas I, I don't think that was as much the case, at least in our department. And I think that probably varies from department to department. So I've had actually students reach out to us as well from other departments saying that they were so happy that we were providing resources for faculty members because they have peers who are neurodivergent that they've been trying to support as a peer and watching them struggle through courses in ways that they think perhaps are unnecessary if faculty had been more prepared, right? And so grateful that we were finally providing some resources and helping faculty to do a better job. That's not a comment about CUNY faculty and what a poor job they were doing. That's not to say that, but I think that this conversation is important and is well-received across the board. And I think there's a good number of people that are like, ah, oh, finally, and didn't feel like they had a forum for this discussion. And so I feel like that's grown where more opportunities to have this discussion and it's not unexpected or is novel. And that's a good thing. I could definitely see that. And there's always room for growth. So even if people were doing it beforehand, I think that it's great to have the opportunity to continue to learn and grow. So what plans do you both have for expanding the neurodiversity hub in the future? Is there any kind of ideas you have for how you want it to grow or even just new resources you want to share? We have a lot of plans, but we are working on creating more content for neurodiversity hub. And this summer, I have had the opportunity to work as a resource coordinator for Project Read at Queens College. So I've been really working on creating resources for neurodivergent students. So that's like from the student side, I'm still working on it. I'm hoping to have it up and running by the end of this month. And it includes resources that I had trouble with. For example, I came back to school after 11 plus years. So finding, let's say, a building, I was completely new to Queens College. So having a map on there or, you know, writing an email, it's very <laughs> daunting for me at times, especially if I'm pressed on time or I'm just really stressed out. I could be too formal or too informal. So it's kind of like finding that, you know, perfect balance between the two. So I'm kind of working on creating these little resources. So that's something that we have expanded to from faculty onto the, the student side and working on organizing the hub a bit better. Like I know in the teams, it comes up as a lot of folders. So I'm just really working on how I could learn more about teams and getting uh, trained in teams and how to make things even more accessible for both faculty and um, students. 
Oh, that's really great that there's so many different expansion options going on. I like the idea of focusing on the students as well. Like you have the faculty side, you can continue to work on that. But now you also have that student side. And I appreciate that you're bringing in your own experiences too. I'm sure that resonates with so many students coming in, whether they're just starting or coming back or they're in the process. I'm sure all those resources will be helpful. And I love the organization, obviously, too, because having something that's easy to navigate just makes it way more accessible for everybody and more likely people to use it. So overall, I kind of wanted to wrap it up with what are both of your thoughts on the importance of neurodiversity inclusion and awareness within higher education? I, as a neurodivergent student, I was late diagnosed. I was 32. I didn't know about my diagnosis. So just learning about everything and having all the experiences and the guidance that I've had um, from Dr. Iskirt, just working as a neurodiversity fellow in the last two years is having a voice. And if I could feel uh, so empowered at 33, I can only imagine what fresh out of high school freshmen are going to feel because students may not know that they're neurodivergent. Some may not be able to get a diagnosis. Some may not want to share a diagnosis because it's a very complicated thing to even get a diagnosis. And you need a diagnosis to get accommodation. At the end of the day, giving students that feeling of that, yes, they belong, or feeling included, that my professor has taken care, that the lights are a bit too bright in the classroom, so maybe it's dimmed a little, so I'm not feeling anxious. Or there's construction going outside, and the window is closed, and therefore I can focus more. Or I'm fidgeting too much in my chair, and they are giving the break every hour. Like, I can stop fidgeting and, like, walk around. Just just these little things, you know, they they mean so much. And working with Dr. Iskir, though, over the last year has been, like, she would tell me, don't worry about it. Don't think that you're on the deadline at all times. Like, do things as they come. I really appreciated her for that. As you can see, she's an example. Of, yes, she talks about it. She acts on it and she does it. And for me, like she's been the best supervisor I've ever had. <laughs> so it's just been great. And so I just feel that neurodiversity inclusion and awareness in higher education is extremely important for students to want to be in school, not want to leave school because we feel that we are heard and we are not, you know, just kind of, oh, you couldn't do an assignment. Well, that's too bad. You know, like giving us multiple means of expression. So if I'm too nervous to do a presentation, how about I can write a paper on that or vice versa? And that's a beautiful thing about UDL. So I just think that it is very important for students. It has always been but now more than ever, especially since we are coming from pandemic, we have a lot of students that have fallen through the cracks and we need to do everything in our might to get everyone back on campus, be it hybrid on campus or like remote. I can't state how important it is. As someone who started her grad school in the middle of pandemics, having neuroanatomy and molecular pharmacology courses over Zoom, I can tell you this is very, very important. I don't know that I have anything to add to that. That was, I think, a beautiful way to end. You know, 
I guess if I had to say anything, I would say take Kartika's story and multiply that, right? Because there are more neurodivergent autistic students on campus than there have ever been before, which is a beautiful thing. And if you take that and consider all the other forms of neurodiversity, there are many, many students who need more support than they currently receive. And it doesn't take much to allow students to shine and show their talents, right? But it needs to be intentional and our education needs to be accessible to everyone. It just takes a little bit of an intentional shift to make that happen. So I'm super happy to be someone who is leading that charge. That's perfect. I thank you so much to both of you, Kartika, Sally, for being here with us today, for telling us all about the Queens College Neurodiversity Hub, as well as your experiences and the work that you're both doing and just the importance of being aware and embracing neurodiversity in higher education. I appreciate you both sharing your expertise with all of us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. This has been great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Assembling Inclusion podcast. I hope the information in this episode taught you something new, gave you a new idea, or showcased a new perspective. If you liked the episode, feel free to leave us a review or comment. If you have a recommendation for an individual or an organization who would make a great guest, you can message us on Twitter or Instagram or send us an email at assemblinginclusion at gmail.com. See you next time.